We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Major Tom McKay is on the board, while Willerskin booking the guests in the legendary CHML newsroom, Dave Woodard and Jennifer McQueen. Here's Scott Thompson. It is Hamilton today. I'm Scott Thompson, 900 CHML. Another jam-packed show we have. Franco Terrazano going to be joining us. I love getting that guy all whipped up into a frenzy. Uh, Canadian Taxpayers Federation uh, anti-pipeline uh, legislation that was tabled actually back in 2019. It's taking this long to get through the court. Anyway, it's overreached by the federal government, and that has been struck down. We'll talk about that coming up a little later on. Uh, nearly one in two Canadians say a recent honoring of a, of a Nazi veteran in Parliament has had a major con- uh, impact on Canada. Canada's reputation abroad, uh, and, and yeah, I mean, I, I just think we're looked at in, in, in a different light now, not just because of this one single issue, but perhaps some similar issues uh, in the past. And I remember when Justin uh, Trudeau got elected back in 2015, it's Canada's back. Canada is back. Well, I'm not sure where we, where we went. And I'm not sure if we're back from there. We'll talk about that coming up a little later on. And sad news over the course of uh, uh, the weekend. Uh, do you remember Three's Company? Suzanne Summers passed away uh, uh, just over the course of the weekend. And remember, she was uh, the blonde in Three's Company and such. And then left the show, was looking for more cake, more money. And she really sort of set the standard for women in Hollywood during that era. And you might remember that eventually she was replaced on the show. And she was, of course, one of the biggest, or if not the biggest draw on the show. And she didn't felt that she was being reimbursed enough for that. And, you know, the whole ditzy blonde thing, what have you. And uh, she she set some trends, and it cost her her career. But uh, obviously went on to speak uh, quite highly of that and, and getting the right pay for women actors and such. So uh, she passes away over the course of the weekend. Bill Brio, TV critic. We're going to talk to her, uh, him about her as well. He's got some, uh, he does some cool stuff uh, with old TV shows and such and uh, has been doing some stuff at the Westdale and has an interesting thing in regard to uh, Three's Company uh, coming up in the next few weeks. So we'll talk to him uh, about that a little later on. Ontario government has tabled a bill to return its land back to the Greenbelt. The Ontario Ministry uh, Minister, Housing Minister, uh, news conference earlier today tabled a bill uh, and it reverses its 2022 move to give the owners of certain Greenbelt properties the right to build housing, uh, boosting their land values uh, by as much as $8 billion, so said the Auditor General. Uh, this was introduced at, T- at Queen's Park. We want to make uh, progress on building 1.5 million homes, but ultimately this was not how the people of uh, the province of Ontario wanted us to do that, uh, said the housing minister in a news conference. We are listening. We are uh, ensuring that going forward, any process with respect to the green belt is done with the most, uh, in the most public and open fashion. And um, anyway, so there you go. That, that's what's happening now. So all of that has been uh, reversed as it looks. And we'll get Colin DeMello, our Queens Park Bureau Chief, in to talk about that coming up a little later on. Also, you may have noticed over the weekend, because, uh, you know, anytime there's a political convention in town, boy, it's a hot ticket. <laughs> it's where the action is. Hey, people, they know how to partay. Well, it's called a partay convention. So come on. Uh, NDP have held their convention in Hamilton over the weekend. Uh, Jagmeet Singh, still the leader. I don't know if there was any confusion of that at all. Um, who else is there? So uh, we'll talk about that in the future of them and what they uh, accomplished over the course of the weekend and uh, and get an update on that. Also, update on what is going on in uh, the Middle East and just, you know, horrific situation over there and um, uh, Israel uh, going into Gaza now after the Hamas attack on Israel and 
you know, for me, this is freedom versus democracy. So we try to find out and separate uh, Hamas from the Palestinian people and learn a little bit about that coming up uh, uh, this hour. Uh, well, in the next hour or so. Also, uh, in regard to that uh, that announcement earlier on today about reversing the Greenbelt decision, does that have any effect on housing or where does that leave housing moving forward? We'll talk about that coming up uh, a little later on. And uh, especially with what's been happening uh, uh, with Israel and Hamas and such, there's been all kinds of uh, uh, protests on either side of this uh, discussion. And as well, a lot of it making its way online. And we've heard situations where uh, people have just gone off online and saying some pretty uh, uh, hateful things, certainly extremely controversial things that has led them to being fired. So, uh, and, and you know, is this any different than anything else we've been talking about? And we have talked about uh, this over the course of, you know, social media taking off and such uh, in the last couple of decades. But are you responsible for what you say? And if you say something that uh, makes the company look bad, can they unload you? We'll talk about that coming up a little later on. All right. You might remember over uh, before the weekend, uh, there was an announcement uh, that a decision uh, by the Supreme Court had overruled uh, some legislation that the federal government had put in place with more overreach over the provinces when it comes to energy. Uh, projects and such. And many thought that it was an overreach, as did the Supreme Court. And it was called the anti-pipeline legislation's been shot down by the Supreme Court. And the Canadians pa- uh, Taxpayers Federation said the big winner is the taxpayers. To talk about all of this, Franco Terrazano with us, Canadian Taxpayers Federation Federal Director and here now. Franco, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Hey, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on today. So Franco, why is this a win for taxpayers? Okay, very easy. I mean, these types of resource projects is what brings in billions and billions of dollars in government revenue, right? So the billions of dollars that are needed to build hospitals, hire more teachers, fix potholes, or of course, to lower taxes. Um, Look, I mean, especially right now, when you see the federal government in particular, up to its eyeballs in debt, more than a trillion dollars in debt, if it's not getting this money from these major resource projects, then where is the federal government going to go looking for that change? from taxpayers, from ordinary citizens with higher taxes. Um, So look, also, this isn't just affecting pipelines, right? This would have affected many different types of major resource projects that go through environmental impact assessments, right? So whether that's pipelines, uh, whether that's mines, whether that's power plants, even dams potentially could have been impacted by this type of legislation. So the reason the Canadian Taxpayers Federation were official interveners in the Supreme Court case is the taxpayer issue, right? We put out a report back in 2019 that showed that, you know, a lack of these major resource projects could be costing taxpayers more than $12 billion over the course of a decade, uh, 12 new hospitals, essentially, worth of lost federal government revenues. You know, it's interesting because, uh, Franco, you bring up that they make announcements. I remember the Beta Nord, and this was supposed to be great and what have you. And then eventually uh, you find out later on that the company has pulled out because there's so much red tape and so much, uh, uh, so many hoops, environmental hoops they have to drop, uh, jump through that the project just isn't, isn't feasible anymore. This is so-called red tape, is it not? Same thing that's stopping us from building houses. Yeah, I think it's a good way to put it. And, and, you know, let me fill your listeners into kind of a well-known secret in Ottawa is that these days you don't kill a project by explicitly saying it out loud with your mouth if you're a politician. The way they kill projects is death by delay, right? These types of resource projects, just think about the capital investment required to, like, extract from a mine or to build pipelines or to set up some oil and gas infrastructure. It's a significant capital uh, investment, and it takes many, many years to come to fruition. What also takes up a long time is is just the approval process, right? So if the federal government, through this piece of legislation, if it can create so much uncertainty that major investors essentially think that they're just never going to get approved, well, they're not going to risk all of that money. And that's one of the reasons that this piece of legislation from the Trudeau government was scaring investors off. Uh, a Trans Mountain Pipeline, a great example of all of this, is it not? Well, Kinder Morgan, right? The private company wanted to invest billions of its own money to twin or expand an existing pipeline. 
right? But but unfortunately, uh, the political system chasing away Kinder Morgan, a private company wanting to use its own money and invest in Canada, uh, chasing away that company isn't the exception. It's, it kind of became the rule under this federal government, right? You had the feds rejecting the Northern Gateway Pipeline. You had them uh, moving the regulatory go post on Energy East. Uh, the Trudeau government barely batted an eye when the president pulled away the his permit on Keystone XL. Now, what are we losing? Billions of dollars in revenue to hire more nurses, to build more hospitals. What else are we losing? The ability to get some of our neighbors back to work, right? We're talking about billions of dollars in investment and economic activity here in Canada. Uh, what else are we losing? The ability to bring down energy costs, right, folks? Not only are high taxes increasing the cost of energy, but you know what would reduce energy? These types of development, these types of projects that increase the supply of energy that we all rely on, whether it's heating our homes or fueling up our cars, or, or even just the fuel to get goods to the store. Um, so the uh, Supreme Court rules against the government calls this overreach. What does this mean? What does it mean for business? What, what does it mean for the, the 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 plan moving forward? Well, it's huge. This is great for business. This is great for resource workers. This is great for Canadian taxpayers. Um, essentially, the federal government has to go back to the drawing board. Right. So they're going to have to make amendments that uh, is in line with the Supreme Court of Canada's ruling. So they got to stop stepping on provincial tolls. That is essentially what the ruling from the Supreme Court of Canada said. They said, hey, Mr. Trudeau, uh, we've got a constitution in Canada. There's things that the federal government can do. There's things that the federal government cannot do. So you got to play within those rules. Now, unfortunately, we've seen time and again, not the first time when it comes to energy regulations or taxes, the federal government working against the provinces rather than working with the provinces. Franco Terrazano with us, Canadian's Hackpair, uh, Canadian Taxpayers Federation, Federal Director, Anti-Pipeline Legislation, shot down by the Supreme Court of Canada last week. Good news for taxpayers, says Franco. Franco, as always, thank you for the time. Be well. Hey, have a great day. Lots of stuff going on in the world, lots of stuff to pay attention to. And, oh, well, that is all going on. We're all trying to make ends meet and make it from one paycheck to the other, or rent to rent, grocery store to grocery store, what have you. It's uh, it's a pretty confusing time for, for the world, let alone uh, here in Canada. And we remember... When President Zelensky of the Ukraine came here and addressed the House of Commons, uh, the Speaker of the House made reference to a Nazi in Parliament and such, and we know what happened there. Does that have impact? Is that so deep into the political weeds that the average Canadian doesn't understand or follow or, or even know what's going on or care what's going on simply because of those issues that I said earlier? Or does it make people think about what they are as a Canadian? Let's bring in Nick Nanos, Chief Data Science uh, Scientist and founder of Nanos Research, and is with us now. Nick, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. I'm well, and great to join you and all your listeners. So, Nick, what, I, we all remember when uh, Justin Trudeau got elected, he, he stood up and said, Canada is back. Uh, and by that, uh, you know, a lot of it was on the world stage. Is Canada back? What is what is our reputation, or what do we think it is? Because sometimes I think Canadians think they're a little better than they are. Well, I don't know how much time you have for an interview, but nope. <laughs> I mean, did you hear a pause? We're not back. You know, the thing is, think of, think of it this way. You know, we're, you know, we had the recent controversy with uh, with President Zelensky and recognizing a Ukrainian war veteran who was a Ukrainian war veteran, uh, but that individual was uh, someone who fought for the Nazis as part of a Waffen-SS unit. Um, so think of that going wrong as an embarrassment. Think of India. Think of China. And mm. uh, I think I think it would be fair to say that, you know, Canadians are not experts in foreign policy, but that's all they see are things messing up and uh, with major powers, major trading power, powers and uh, and also just mistakes at home that uh, don't reflect well on the country and its uh, international reputation. It seems that in every category, they just not have They're having a hard time. Yeah. And you know what? I guess if we well think of it this way, China's, you know, a, a superpower, major trade power, major security, uh, military power. We've got frosty and very strained relationships, relations with China. Now we also have strained 
relations with India, another major power in the world and uh, and important economically. And, you know, even on one of the big files right now, uh, when it comes to the war in the Ukraine, uh, controversy because of the, the recognition of the uh, Ukrainian war veteran who is affiliated or associated with the Nazis in the House of Commons. Uh, and, and as you alluded to, uh, Nick, the, uh, you know, these are pretty deep into the political weeds, but is it one right after another, the frequency of these? Because you sometimes wonder if Canadians fully understand, but they seem to be grabbing this. Is it the frequency that has something to do with it? Yeah, absolutely. It's it's like things uh, things start piling on. You know, it's kind of, you know, like in a baseball game, three strikes, you're out, right? Yeah. You know, how many problems is Canada going to have in the relations with different countries? You know, the only thing that would be icing on the cake, I'll call it negative icing on the terrible cake, would be if our relationship with the United States went sideways. It would be like Donald Trump winning the election, you know, the next election, and it'd be like, oh, boy, so we're going to have trouble with China, trouble with India, and trouble with the uh, with the United States. So uh, so it's, it's basically an, an accumulation effect. It's like nothing can go right. On foreign yeah. policy, uh, and uh, whether it's the fault of Canadians or the fault of the situation, is just—it's uh, like we're not—we're uh, not back by any stretch. It doesn't really matter what uh, politicians might say. The reality is, is that you know when you're not on good terms with big countries like China and India, that's just not good. Period for a country that relies on trade. Uh, for its prosperity. In the past, Nick, uh, Canadians have kind of stuck their nose up to Americans. Uh, you joke if Canadians want to feel better about themselves, they just look south of the border. Um, and of course, they're right. <laughs> but um, and do you think this is changing that perception that, you know, maybe we're, 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 being, we're not puffing the chest out as much? We're like, uh, you know, maybe we won't be so quick to insult the United States. Well, you know, I think when Donald Trump was, uh, was president of the United States, it was a big wake up call because uh, you know, he yeah. uh, he had no favors to do for the Canadians. He was very focused on an American agenda. And, he, and I would hazard to say he didn't really care uh, because it wasn't part of his agenda to uh, to be nice to to Canada compared to other presidents. And why don't we just put Ronald Reagan at the top, who had a very good uh, relationship with uh, Brian Mulroney or even Bill Clinton, who had a good relationship with with Jean Chrétien. So. Uh, you know, right now, I think Canadians aren't necessarily comparing themselves to Canadian uh, to Americans, but the Canadians are just thinking, it seems we're just having trouble with all the big powers in the world. Mm. And, you know, what's going right? And, you know, they're crickets when uh, someone asks, you know, what's going right? And is Canada's reputation better now than it was in 2015? And I think the answer is no. What about support for Ukraine? Obviously, when the Russian invasion first started, there was lots of it. it we were seeing it start to sway a little bit or wane a little bit in the United States. What about here in Canada? Do we still have full support for Ukraine and the money it's it's taking to, to fund this? Yeah. Um, well, you know, when we ask uh, Canadians, about three out of every 10 or 31 percent of Canadians believe that the amount of financial support that we're providing is too much. Right now, about 44 percent say it's about the right amount. And uh, and and another nineteen percent not enough. So you know a majority think that we're either at the right level or could do a little more. So that's the that good news in terms of the war in Ukraine. And there's a significant amount of sympathy uh, for uh, Ukrainians and the fight that they're in right now against the Russians who have invaded their country. We remember, of course, you were talking about India and uh, and and the referring to the prime minister speaking up in the House of Commons about ties between the Indian government and the execution of a Sikh separatist in British Columbia. And then speaking of crickets, all the allies were, were quite mum on everything. What are Canadians' support in regard to this issue? Uh, obviously, maybe not the best PR play, but do they stand with the prime minister? Well, first of all, the polling that we did with CTV News suggests that a majority of Canadians believe or somewhat believe uh, Prime Minister Trudeau about the intelligence the intelligence reports that tie the, the that individual to being killed by the uh, the government in India. So they believe the story that that, yeah. that there is a connection, at least a majority believe. Uh, however, uh, it's pretty clear that that uh, very few Canadians agree with the approach of the federal government. About twenty six percent agree with the approach, which is kind mm -hmm. of amping it up and increasing tensions. 57% or an outright majority of Canadians would just actually like to see Canada decrease tensions 
with India and engage in uh, diplomatic talks. And another 11% or one out of every 10 says, hey, you know, should be patient. So there's not a lot of support for aggressive action against uh, China. I think what they'd like to see, at least from the federal government, is to perhaps ratchet down the rhetoric and uh, and try to focus on diplomacy as the path forward in order to uh, help repair the diplomatic relationship with India. Nick Nano's with us, chief data scientist, founder of Nano's Research, gauging uh, the mindset of Canadians in the world we live in. Nick, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. You too. You made me love you. That was Suzanne Summers, I understand, back from 1985. She passed away uh, over the weekend. Bill Brio joins us, TV critic, author. Uh, you can find out more at Brio.tv. He is here now. Bill, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. Doing well. Scott, how are you? So far, so good. You interviewed her a couple of times. Let's get right to the situation with Three's company. This was a massive show. She was a massive TV star. And then, boom, contract issues, and she was gone. What happened? Well, she was making about uh, a fifth of what John Ritter was, and and they were co-starring on Three's Company with Joyce DeWitt. Uh, It was going into its fifth season, and uh, together with her husband, Alan Hamill, they just went to the network and said, look, this isn't fair. Uh, She was making up apparently about $30,000 a week, Ritter about $150,000, and they said, we want to raise. And the network said, we can replace you, and uh, they did. A uh, good move or bad move for her in retrospect? Well, it's often an example of, you know, a, a, a star trying to hold up a network that failed. However, she made so much money from the thigh master after that, yeah. it dwarfed <laughs> yes. any income she might have made continuing on that series. She also got, you know, she had to sit for a while, but she was always on Larry King Live or Oprah. And then she was on a couple of sitcoms. She's the sheriff. Uh, step by step, and then uh, the the thigh master took off, and she, uh, you know, t- took it all to the bank. What happened to the show after she left? It sputtered on for a while. It lasted a few more seasons. They had different people replacing her. The network wasn't wrong, but there was something that she brought to it as sort of the blonde bimbo character, Cindy, that uh, people really loved, and so. It was a risk, uh, you know, it was almost like replacing Alan Alda on MASH at the time. Like, it was a big, big move for them to make. Was she a trailblazer for sticking to her guns? Yeah, I think she was, Scott. Yeah, you know, I mean, she had a point. She was an integral part of that show. A lot of people watched just to see her. Uh, Ritter was very talented, but uh, why was she paid a lot, lot less than he was? So I think it was good that she made that point, uh, but certainly... uh, she did much better later on. And I've got a couple of great, one great story in particular I'd like to tell about just. Yeah, go her. for it. Go uh, for it. She was in Toronto maybe 20 years ago with Alan Hamill. Hamill, older listeners may remember, he was the co-host of Razzle Dazzle in the mm. 60s. It was a kid's show and they had a turtle puppet. And anyway, he was the co-host of that. So they had an announcement. I was working at the Toronto Sun. Come on and down and interview um, you know, we've got the, the star of Three's Company here. And, uh, you know, she wants to do a one-woman show at the Royal Alex. Uh, I go down. I, the door opens. There they are. I walk right past her and just talk to Alan Hamill, my hero from Razzle Dazzle. You know, so they got a <laughs> kick out of that, which was, was fun. But the I had just found at the time my uh, ex-wife, Kathy, who had been diagnosed with breast cancer. And I was, hmm. you know, this had been days earlier. I was a little shook up. And so when I went to talk to her, I was still reeling from that. And she was famous for having gone public with her uh, battle with cancer. She fought it a different way. She used a hormone therapy approach that was radical and very different. But the two of them took the time to talk to me about this. They went, they went, flew back to California. They sent books about the therapy. They sent information. And I never forgot how um, very, very sweet and generous they were to a total stranger at that particular time. How do you think she'll be remembered? Um, that's a great question. You know, I think in the heat of this moment, we're finding a lot of our TV idols are, are just sadly passing away. People that we sort of knew intimately from watching them so often. So 
if you're a boomer or a bit younger, you have very close memories of Suzanne Summers. I don't know if my kids really have those kinds of memories. So time, you know, if you're 30 or over, you never saw Johnny Carson, for example, in his prime. Mm. So the legacy may not be, be there forever, but for what she did, and she was also an author and sold a lot of books and advocated on behalf of this therapy, I think a lot of people today will think of her very fondly. Talk about what you're doing at the Westdale. Westdale's Wednesday, we got a screening of, what do you know, TV clips from back in the day. And I'm really, really happy. One of the things we're showing is ABC's 1978 fall preview reel. One of the new shows that year, Three's Company. So come out to the Westdale this Wednesday, one o'clock, and see a, a clip from the pilot episode of Three's Company with Suzanne Summers. We also got some great trivia prizes we're dying to give away. So hope to see some folks from Hamilton at the Westdale on Wednesday. Uh, what Talk about this era of TV. And because this was, you know, Three's Company was, was pretty much a fluff show. Uh, and, and, and a lot of people did just tune in because Suzanne Summers was as beautiful as she was. Talk about this era. It was the Jiggle era, Scott. That's yeah, literally yeah, yeah. what it was called. Farrah so Fawcett, all that. Farrah Fawcett, Charlie's Angels. You had the Battle of the Network stars. Uh, you know, people were seeing uh, Lycra in a whole new light uh, at this time. It was uh, definitely very permissive in terms of fashion. And let's face it, it was a very sexist era. Uh, and, uh, you know, looking at this reel from 1978, I have to actually caution audiences because times have changed, you know, and, and there's uh, other other references to race and gender. We're, we're talking 45 years ago. So it's a, it's a window on a very different time, but it's the one uh, I grew up in. You know, I was, I guess, just starting university those days. And uh, that was the deal. You had to tune into Three's Company to see Suzanne Summers, absolutely, and uh, all of those folks back then. Bill Brio, TV critic, author. Find out more at brio.tv. And, of course, The Westdale, this week on Wednesday, has uh, a special screening that takes you back to this era. Uh, Bill, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Good luck at The Westdale. Thanks a lot, Scott. Appreciate it. Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer. He'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. All right, Ontario's housing minister has introduced legislation today to return land from Ontario's protected greenbelt that the government had previously removed for housing. We certainly know what happened there uh, when the poop hit the fan, and now this has been uh, switched around. What is different now? Is there anything? different from a protocol standpoint so these mistakes aren't made again colin demella with us queen's park bureau chief global news and with us now colin thank you for the time hope you're well hey good afternoon thank you for having me so colin what happened this afternoon what is different now well, n nothing really, except for the fact that the government has now tabled legislation that will officially reverse the green belt decision. So mm -hmm. uh, the government says in its entirety, it is scrapping the entire plan. That means the 7,400 acres that were removed for housing development, they will now be returned to the green belt. There were 9,400 acres that the government had proposed to add to the green belt as a land swap. Those will remain. So a net increase for the green belt. The boundaries of the green belt are now going to be codified in law, meaning a future government would have to table legislation in order to amend the uh, boundaries of the green belt. They can't do it just through regulation only. And then as well, um, you know, any of those landowners who were upset by the government's decision, they will not be able to sue the government. Part of this new legislation is an indemnity clause that basically protects everyone from the premier to the housing ministers uh, to all of the people who were involved with the Greenbelt land swap. It'll protect them from any future kind of litigation or lawsuits. So the, the government is hoping to kind of neatly put everything back into the box but hmm. let's not forget, there's an RCMP investigation figuring out how the box was opened and everything came out of the box in the first place. So the government is trying to undo everything, but all of the decisions that were made about a year ago, that is still 
under active police investigation. You said that now uh, this has to go through legislation if there's any changes. So what is different in the protocol now if this comes up again? So the protocol currently means that while the green belt is enacted and enshrined in law, um, any tinkering around the green belt can be done in regulation. That regulation is entirely controlled by the government. They basically have to post a regulation online for online feedback or submissions from the public, and then away they go. With legislation, they have to table it in the legislature. It gets scrutinized by members of the opposition. It can perhaps go to uh, a committee for further kind of examination of the bill for any you know additional amendments that need to be made to fine tune it, and then finally gets passed and then has to be uh, you know uh, ascended into law by the lieutenant governor. So there are a lot more steps in legislation, and it essentially is like seeing this coming through the front door of Queens rather than the government being able to slip it in. And that's a major difference, the government says, so that nobody in the future can do exactly what this government did. What about, Colin, I understand every so many years, 10 years or so, they have to review all of this and update anything that needs to be updated or or, or just glance at it with a new set of eyes. Uh, is, is any of that changed? No. So the government is actually going to undertake a review of the entire two million acres of the Greenbelt. So this 10 year review was supposed to happen in 2025, right? It, it, the Greenbelt was codified mm. in 2005. The first review happened in 2015. The next review was scheduled for 2025. So the government is fast tracking that review. But this time, remembering that the, the government got burned very badly in this, they're promising that the review will take place with an independent panel, a, a panel independent of government. It depends on who is appointed to that panel, critics say, but the panel will be independent of government and the lands will be taken to the Auditor General and the Environment Commissioner for review before they're removed or before any other amendments will will take place. So the government isn't necessarily saying it's not going to touch the green belt in the future in the you know three and a half or three years that it has left in government. But what they're saying is this time the process will be transparent. People will see what the government is doing. It'll be an independent panel with experts that'll make the recommendations. The auditor general will give it the the green light and the stamp of approval, and it'll come through legislation so that everyone knows what the government is doing. Uh, Because even the housing minister said what was done was unilateral by the government, and that's what got them into trouble. So they're apologizing, and now they're saying, we're never going to do this in the same way that we did it again if they have to do it again. All right, Colin, give us an update on what's going on with NDP MPP uh, Sarah Jama and what she said. Uh, the uh, Ontario government now saying it's discriminating and anti-Semitic comments want an apology uh, in the legislature. Where is this going? Yeah, you know, it actually got kind of ugly in the legislature today. So Sarah Jama wasn't present, neither was Premier Doug Ford. But the the uh, opposition, uh, every time they asked a question, there was heckling that was coming from uh, the, the government benches. And then and the, and they, you know, kept kind of taunting the opposition, saying, where is Sarah Jama? Where is Sarah Jama? One of the government MPPs actually yelled out while Marit Stiles was asking a question, saying, uh, you know, what, what does the integrity commissioner say about terrorism? So it kind of got a bit ugly in the legislature. And now, uh, the Ontario legislature is set to debate a couple of things tomorrow. They, they want to debate a, a motion um, about everything that had happened in Israel. So two motions. The first motion is, you know, looking at the attacks on Israel by what the government is saying that is the terrorist organization Hamas that will be talked about in the House tomorrow. The second motion is a censure of MPP Sarah Jama for the statements that she made on social media. So what they're saying is they want her to retract and apologize for for her statements in the Ontario legislature, or the legislature is essentially saying that the speaker is not going to recognize her, so she's not going to get an opportunity to speak in the Ontario legislature. So, I mean, that's a pretty serious censure of of Sarah Jama if it comes to pass, and and that's what the government is is trying to um, enforce tomorrow. Colin DeMello with us, Queen's Park Bureau Chief, Global News. Make sure you're watching Global Tonight for more on all of this. Colin, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thank you so much for having me. 900 CHML, it's Hamilton Today. We're coming right back. 
You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right, as you're probably aware, the NDP held their convention in Hamilton over the weekend, and Jagmeet Singh is still the leader. I- I'm not really surprised about that, but I guess some are. Um, 81% of the vote he got, which seems pretty high, but I guess in the past it's been 90. Uh, but still, obviously, a, a pretty good score, and uh, it looks like they have confidence in him, at least for one more go-around. Let's bring in Peter Gray, Professor of Political Science, McMahon. University. He is here now. Peter, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. I am, thanks. I hope you're well, too. So, Peter, your thoughts on this convention? Uh, what was the main objective, the main ob- uh, agenda in your in your mind? And was was the, the, the leadership ever really in question over the course of the weekend? Yeah, I don't think there was any question around the leadership. I mean, you know, the NDP and its constitution is meant to have a convention every uh, two years as the sort of extreme decision-making body in the party. Um, uh, they hadn't had it for three years, I guess, because of the pandemic and also wanting to save money. And so I think, you know, really this was an occasion uh, for party activists to get together, kind of figure where they're at in the electoral cycle and, to, you know, debate a number of policies. You know, as part of the the rules at every convention, the leader uh, faces a potential leadership review uh, you know, in this instance, a vote of 81%, I wouldn't say was a particularly smashing result. Uh, you would expect in many cases that the, the sort of party activists would have a more positive view of their leader. Uh, but, you know, it was not terrible either. To me, the message really was uh, that Jagmeet Singh has one more kick at the electoral can. And if he doesn't, you know, produce better results, then, you know, the next time they will be asking uh, for a leadership review and uh, potentially to choose a new leader. Uh, he has an agreement with the governing liberals, uh, which gives him tremendous power and leverage. What more can he do other than becoming prime minister? Yeah, I'm not sure how much uh, power and leverage he has in that agreement. Uh, you know, ultimately, I think he felt that that was uh, given the NDP's relatively weak standing in the House of Commons. That was uh, the best he could extract from them. Uh, but at the same time, you know, the experience uh, in situations where you have these kinds of agreements is that the small parties usually get punished at the end, uh, because ultimately, if people like the government, well, they'll like the liberals in this case. And if they don't like it, well, they'll tar all the parties supporting uh, the government with that brush. So for the NDP, I think an issue at this stage is how do you get out uh, or how do you find a way uh, when you're back in front of Canadians to make the case of what specific things you want in that agreement uh, and why there's a, a reason that you should be you know, supported in terms of representing something other than the Liberal Party. And I think that's going to be the challenge for for Jagmeet Singh, you know, who's been uh, painted fairly successfully, I think, by conservatives as just another liberal. So how do you find a way of making the NDP uh, relevant as uh, offering something different than the liberals? Uh, we had Jagmeet Singh on just prior to uh, the convention, and he was talking about using uh, the leverage from the agreement to uh, to get pharmacare uh, uh, through and so on and so forth. And I, and I bluntly came out and asked him, like, you know, obviously, uh, the polling shows there's, you know, this government's in trouble, that, that, that people want change. So why not take a kick at the can and, and, and you know, put Canadians out of their misery, so to speak? And he was very adamant that this isn't about power for him. It wasn't about becoming prime minister. It was about adding change or value to Canadians' lives by being able to influence the Liberals into certain things, to which, you know, rightly so pointed out, I don't know how much leverage uh, that he has. Does the party want him to be Prime Minister? I mean, is that part of the agenda that you're going after the big gig? Because until I really pressed it on him, and then at the end he was saying, yeah, I want to be PM, I want to be PM. But it just didn't seem to be a priority to bring the government down, obviously because they don't have a lot of cake right now, perhaps. And, and, and perhaps, you know, numbers that are more dismal, dismal than the liberals. But at what point does the party say, hey, we want to lead? Yeah, I mean, I suspect, uh, you know, if they want to get there, I think they realize if they pull the plug now, uh, you know, the election doesn't leave them in a particularly uh, advantageous spot. So I think they're making the gamble. I mean, again, as far as I can read, uh, you know, as, a, as an outsider, Um I think they're making the gamble that they can win more from a weakened Liberal Party. I mean, Trudeau obviously does not want to go at this moment. He wants at least another year to be able to 
you know, to put together some kind of credible narrative or to start uh, on some policies that might be interesting to Canadians or, or to solve some problems, uh, difficult problems where, you know, Canadians might respect his government as a result. I mean, he needs that runway. And to that extent, I think Jagmeet Singh thinks he maybe has a capacity to win something, you know, such as a pharmacare program that in the long run is probably going to be do more for his attempt to run for prime minister to say ultimately, you know, we're the ones who are able to actually get useful things done in that last parliament uh, in this minority situation. I think that's a much more useful card for him to play than to simply be the person who's caused an election where mm. Trudeau will run out and say, well, the only way that we can prevent Pierre Polievre from you know being elected is for all the non-conservative uh, voters to vote for me. Uh, you know, a situation where Jagmeet Singh's NDP is likely to get crushed as they have in, in past similar elections. Uh, you know, I think similar to how Kathleen Wynne really managed to uh, sideline Andrea Horvath uh, in about 2014-2015. So for, for Singh, I think to try and win things is going to be more useful for him in, in standing in front of Canadians and to simply go to the polls now when uh, it's going to really lead to the Liberals rallying all the votes against the Conservatives and making it very hard for the NDP. When will there be a better time? Because even if this runs down the full length of the, run, uh, the runway, as you put it, won't people still look at them as, well, you're one and the same? Yeah, I mean, I guess that's the, the point of trying to develop, uh, you know, say that red line on pharmacare so that if the Liberals actually deliver the program that they kind of promised in 2019 and they got Eric Hostens to write a report about, they deliver that. Maybe that looks more like an NDP program at this time uh, to the extent that the NDP has been kind of wrestling for it. And it seems, yeah, I'm, I'm a bit surprised that the Liberals haven't put more behind the children's uh, dental and the expansion of dental care in this country. But, you know, to date, the NDP has been pretty successful at claiming credit for it. So I think they see it uh, that as their way uh, of building credibility. But at the same time, you know, if they are to contest for uh, the prime ministership, there needs to be, I think, a lot more party building. And I think one aspect that was really noticeable in the convention this weekend uh, from a few people I spoke to, the NDP is very popular with young Canadians, Canadians under 35 these days, in some cases being the leading party for that group of voters, but uh, not a lot of evidence of those young people uh, in in the convention. And so, uh, you know, part of it is, you know, what can you show in these minority government situations? But part of it, too, seems to be a party that needs to get more serious in building its capacity to to run winning campaigns and including new people in their tent. All right. I can't let you go without asking you about the provincial NDP and Sarah Gemma MPP and the attention she has drawn for her statements in regarding to Hamas and Israel and such. How much of this is a distraction for uh, Merritt Stiles at one? Uh, is there a point where it's not worth it anymore? Uh yeah, I mean, I to my mind, I'm surprised. Uh, you know, we've seen in Canadian party politics, uh, people kicked out of parties for much less disagreement with hmm. uh, the party leaders and party lines. Uh, you know, so it's clear that in Merritt Stiles' calculation uh, that there's a, a political talent in Sarah Jama uh, that she wishes to to continue to have in the party. But I think also recognizing that the exclusion of Sarah Jama in terms of what she represents for part of the NDP base would be um, a bigger headache in terms of uh, a number of fights within the NDP about, uh, you know, choices of of how lines are policed and so forth. So I think that's probably a lot of what Merritt Stiles is thinking about at the moment is, uh, yes, it's a distraction, but it's one that's likely to blow over, um, you know, and she doesn't necessarily want to uh, deal with an internal party crisis uh, before then. Peter Greff with us, professor of political science, McMaster University, uh, commenting on the NDP, uh, federal NDP convention in Hamilton last weekend. Peter, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. And you too. Obviously, the conflict continues uh, after Hamas uh, invaded, uh, attacked uh, Israel. Now, of course, uh, Israel standing by and in, in, in invading uh, the Gaza Strip, trying to rid it of Hamas. What is the relationship between uh, the Gaza Strip and Hamas? What's the relationship between uh, Palestinians and Hamas? Let's bring in Costanza Misu, uh, Associate Professor of Public and International Affairs with the Faculty of Social uh, Social Sciences, University of Ottawa, and here now. Costanza, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. I am. Thank you. Is this really about Israeli, Israelis versus Palestinians, or is this about freedom versus democracy? Or, sorry, uh, uh, democracy versus authoritarianism? 
Well, it's uh, it's really quite complicated. Yeah. Uh, I I heard you just a second ago. Uh, you know, also wondering aloud what's the relationship between the Palestinian and Hamas and Hamas rule in uh, the Gaza Strip. So. Uh, you know, uh, Hamas has been ruling in uh, Gaza uh, since 2007, and um, the issue is that their plan and their stated purpose, which is in their charter, is the destruction of the state of Israel, mm -hmm. as well as the establishment of a Palestinian state on the totality of what are we call today the Palestinian territories, plus also Israel. So a Palestinian state over the totality of those territories with uh, essentially a, a, an Islamic state in nature uh, and the application of Sharia law. Uh, so obviously this is, um, makes uh, Hamas not quite an interlocutor uh, in the peace talks between Israel and the Palestinians. Uh, at the same time, though, Israel and, and the Palestinians are uh, in a very strained uh, peace process um, that hasn't really yielded any fruits in the past years. And as we know, uh, Israel has uh, built settlements in the West Bank and controls the Gaza Strip, right? So the situation is extremely complicated all around. And, you know, it's uh, it's very difficult. It's really, a, a, you know, a power cat. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and again, uh, knowing everything in the history, it is quite complex. Does, do Palestinians need to separate themselves from Hamas or one in the same? Well, it's very difficult for Palestinians living in Gaza to separate themselves. Mm -hmm. Essentially, there has been a conflict uh, almost amounting to a civil war between Hamas and uh, Fatah, which re which is the the biggest party, and that uh, you know also represents um, uh, the uh, the government of uh, the Palestinians in the West Bank. Right, the Palestinian Authority mm -hmm. is mostly composed of Hamas of uh, sorry of uh, Fatah representatives, um, and uh, so there was an internal conflict and. I wouldn't say that all Palestinians identify with Hamas. Um, in fact, uh, the surveys that have been conducted in the past years say that even in the Gaza Strip, which is ruled by Hamas, um, the support for Hamas itself is only around 50%. Uh, there is some support for Hamas also in the West Bank, which is, as I said, not ruled by Hamas, but rather by the Palestinian Authority. And this is mostly as a reaction to what is seen as, uh, uh, you know, a government in the West Bank that is uh, weak and corrupt uh, and hasn't really progressed in um, uh, reaching a peace agreement with Israel. So, you know, I think I think the Palestinians are really ultimately the civilians are really caught in an impossible situation because on the one hand, they see a government that they don't see as really pushing their interests. On the other hand, they have an authoritarian um, government, the Hamas government, that doesn't really accept, uh, you know, dialogue or opposition and doesn't actually also want a peace process. They don't mm. want that. They, that's not yeah. what they're seeking. They're not seeking a two-state solution, which has been hailed as kind of the only possible solution for this conflict. They actually want a one-state solution being that being a Palestinian state. And in all that, I, I, I think the, the majority of Palestinian civilians living in the Gaza Strip today are only victims of this. Uh, and we can see that while, um, you know, there are bombs falling and, and Israel is preparing a, a ground operation and has done an aerial operation for the past several days, um, the uh, Hamas is asking Palestinian civilians to stay in their homes, which obviously would mean a, a, an even larger number of casualties. Mm. Uh, so, you know, that really makes it for, for a very difficult situation for them and for the international community that wants to help them. We've only got a short time left, uh, Costanza. Israeli, Israel now obviously wants to rid Gaza of Hamas. Where does that leave Palestinians? 
it's a, it's the biggest question today because even if the Israelis manage to you know conduct a, a successful ground operation, which is not a given because it's an extremely difficult and complex operation, uh, you know who would govern in Gaza is the big question. You know, the, 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 Israel doesn't necessarily want to govern Gaza, but then what's the alternative? Bring in a Palestinian authority? Well, would they have popular support? That's not necessarily clear. Would it be some kind of international mechanism? Uh, maybe of Arab states um, that, you know, there are many hypotheses on the table, but the answer is not clear at all at this point. Costanza Mizu with us, Associate Professor of Public and International Affairs with the Faculty of Social uh, Social Sciences, University of Ottawa, uh, trying to help us understand what is going on in the Middle East. Costanza, uh, Costanza, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you very much. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. All right, the Ontario government has tabled legislation today that would return parcels of land to the Greenbelt. Uh, you remember that? Uh, we're not going to touch the Greenbelt. Then we are. Then we're not again. And uh, flipping and flopping and... And but at, <laughs> at least they did change their way, I guess. Uh, the bill will restore all 7,400 acres of land that the province removed, and it will keep the 94 acres of land that it was supposed to add to it in the land slot, uh, swap. So now the green belt is uh, is even bigger now. Uh, does this help housing? What does it do for housing? Does it just kick this problem further down the field? Let's bring in Mertaza Hader, Professor of Data Science, Real Estate Management, Toronto Metropolitan University, and here now. Mertaza, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I am. Thank you. And uh, so do you. Um, I hope you're doing well. So, Mertaza, with what has been announced today, what has changed regarding the protocol around the Greenbelt? The land was put back. More has been added. But is anything different here, or is this problem going to come up again in the future? No, I think there's been a systematic change made um, in the way any changes to Greenbelt will take place in the future. For instance, um, when the government, Ontario government, recently removed land, um, they did it through uh, um, a decision made by the government. Um, it wasn't um, uh, through a legislation tabled in the at Queen's Park or a debate at Queen's Park. Now, the new law, the bill that has been introduced, is going to codify the boundaries of the green belt, which will then means that any future change to the boundary of green belt will have to be debated at Queen's Park rather than um, an order of the government kind of an arrangement where the, the executive authority exercises its authority and makes a decision. So it would be uh, more formal and open in the future. Any debate on green belt would be more formal and, and transparent in the future. That being said, Murtaza, uh, if the government of the day has a majority after all of that debate, can they not just do what they set out to do anyway? Well, if they have the majority, they will be able to do um, what what they have. But I think more importantly, um, such decisions, if made through proper scientific evidence, um, would carry more weight and will win the support of the people. Uh, at the moment, the the green belts, regardless of their utility, and I think there's tremendous utility there, um, they are assumed to be um, of tremendous value and never to be touched by in the minds of the electorate. The electorate believes that there shouldn't be any changes to the green belt or green areas while living on areas that were green belt once before. So it's not that the yeah. places where people reside today were barren land, they were green belts or green areas or agricultural land in the past, and someone paved over to, to make room for their homes. Um, but so, but but the thing is that the way things were done were not was not appropriate. I think there's a proper way. The government has a big bureaucracy that should be used uh, to make such decisions, um, uh, to make case for such decisions. Because the real problem is not the green belt. We are debating green belt and avoiding the debate on the real problem, and that is housing affordability. The Absolutely. real problem is that we don't build enough homes, and that yeah. debate, and I've told you before um, in, the, in, in our previous conversations, that this, this controversy about Greenbelt is further Push the is going to push the problem and solutions further down the road as it yeah. as they relate to housing affordability and building more homes and that's where my concern lies that we now we are not discussing building more homes as much as we should have and the focus has been on greenbelt. 
However, Mertaza, I do think that this discussion of nibbling away at the green belt has brought to the attention, has brought to the public's attention, uh, because the people who don't want you nibbling away at the green belt are saying, well, there's all this other land that has to be developed, in which there is. However, none of that land's been developed either. So it's now drawn attention to that. Well, if you don't want to use the green belt, why haven't you developed this other land uh, instead, thus, therefore, creating the housing shortage and situation? So, as you mentioned, the green belt's really just been a distraction away from the fact we haven't built enough houses for the last 20 years. Absolutely. And then this whole notion of there's plenty of land available to build. Um, the thing is, the land may be earmarked for development, but is it really um, valuable land that should be profitable for builders and owners? That part is not certain. Uh, if land was available, which it, it is earmarked and it was profitable to build, it would have been built long time ago. The challenge is that the land that has been earmarked for development may not be earmarked for the right kind of development because almost every builder um, goes into uh, asking for more density than what is being designated there and mm. months and years are lost debating for or asking for more density. So it's not just the, <clears throat> pardon me, it's not just the land that is missing. It's that the land is there, but it's not designated uh, for the right kind of development or not necessarily at the right place where people's aspirations for housing exist. What we have to do is to look at why that land is not being developed. And in, in present day circumstances where the interest rates are so high and the cost of doing business and the cost of borrowing is high, all those spreadsheets that made previous development ideas profitable yeah. are no yeah. longer profitable. So that's where we are. We're stuck where we are building fewer homes now with all the push that we have come up with from the government. Mm. Fewer homes are being constructed now than they were a year or so ago. What have we learned from this whole exercise? Is it, have we learned anything? I think the lessons learned is that things should be done transparently um, and that we should always use the scientific method to bring evidence in front of the people. We shouldn't hide um, stuff from the people because people need to know at some point they will have to either allow more density in their backyard and if they don't want to do it, as Mississauga just voted down four plexes, um, and they said, no, we don't want any density in our backyards. So either you allow density in your back backyards or you allow development at the fringe. And that evidence has to be brought in front of the people so that they can realize that as they vote no for these options, they are voting no for housing for their future generations, their future neighbors. And that's a cost if they want to bear as a society, then that's a choice they make. All right. There it is. Very, very plain and simple. Uh, you don't build, you don't have houses. Uh, it's as simple as that. And uh, Murtaza Haiti with us from uh, Toronto Metropolitan University. Thank you so much for the time. Be well. Thank you. With what is going on in the world, uh, of course, you've heard of uh, situations online where people become uh, getting conversations, debates. It becomes very heated, uh, and then it just eventually spirals out of control and becomes hate. People say things that uh, they shouldn't have said, and then the next thing you know, there's rippling effects to that, perhaps from your employer. And uh, obviously, with what has happened with Hamas attacking Israel and, and what has happened since has uh, created a lot of divisiveness uh, in certain situations and people have posted things and employers have found out and have said, nope, that's not appropriate. You're gone. Very similar to what we saw way back during the height of the global pandemic when uh, people were speaking out, whether it was for or against vaccines or so. Uh, the same sort of thing happened. And I guess at the end of the day, we're going to probably arrive at the same conclusion talking with Howard that if you make the company look bad, uh, they don't have to put up with it. But let's find out. Howard Levitt with a senior partner, Levitt Sheik, employment and labor lawyers with offices in Toronto and The Hammer and here now. Howard, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I'm well. Hope you're well as well. Yeah, thanks so much for taking the time. We saw this a bit during the uh, pandemic and such. Uh, what can we say online? What may get you fired? I think that comparing it to the pandemic really trivializes the issue. In this case, mm. we're talking about a terrorist organization declared as a terrorist organization by the government of Canada, Public Safety Canada, and the glorification of murdering, beheading, raping, doing matters are just unspeakable. And then we have people celebrating it. 
celebrating the death of families of many Canadians and many people who have not just families, friends, people who've been to Israel and just a desecration of humanity itself. And to the extent it's publicized that a member of your organization, particularly one who's client-facing or public-facing or in management, celebrates that online in a way that can be seen by anyone else, that's cause for discharge because it really damages the brand of that employer. Dramatically more than could be said about people arguing about mask mandates, which is really, frankly, quite trivial by comparison and not something that's illegal as this is. We're talking about I didn't mean to. I didn't mean to trivialize any of this, Howard. I was just saying that both these situations could end up you in trouble with your employer for saying the wrong yes. things that could eventually yes, get could. you dismissed. And that was my point. More of an argument with respect to mask mandates, et cetera, that it doesn't really make your employer look that bad. But in this case, there's no doubt about that. So I've wrote in the post, which has got me here today, that employers have the right to fire people for cause. And if any, and I've actually said, I'm saying again. If anybody is sued for that, if any employer is sued for that, I'll act for the employer for free is my contribution to the cause. Um, we, we've certainly heard of situations. I believe there was an Air Canada pilot that was let go because of this. Yet we're seeing yes. in situations in politics where uh, the same sort of situation and the person is still there. Is it different when you're an employee versus an elected official? Yes, there's a very different uh, ability. to You can fire an employee. At will, the only issue is whether they have to pay them severance pay or whether it's cause. In this case, I say it's cause as, as an employment lawyer. As an elected official, it's not so easy to recall someone. In some positions, can't be recalled at all. For example, I wondered when Mayor Chow made her first equivocal statements, really suggesting a reciprocity between Israel and Hamas, I looked personally into whether or not she could be recalled and found that it didn't look like she could be. So some politicians, it's really impossible to remove them from office. Some politicians, it depends on what level of government you're in, they have to commit a criminal offense before they can remove from government. But employees can be fired at will. Yet, um, it's still the same offense. Yes, except you can't get rid of the politician. You can get rid of the employee. And people say it's free speech. The charter, the charter has nothing to do with this. This is not about your right to protest, your right to express an opinion. Although when it's hate speech, there may be some criminal obligations and criminal liabilities. We're talking here about the right of an employer to fire somebody, which is a much where the charter isn't involved at all in that discussion. Right. It's employer-employee relationships. Uh, what is, so in situations like this where uh, there's obviously different views and, and the employee does get fired, um, again, does it, it depend on the severity of the issue? For example, something like this, uh, then that would warrant getting uh, dismissed and such where others wouldn't. Where is that line? The line is if, a pup, if it's obvious to the employee or should be obvious that what they're saying is either inherently calumnious, inherently a horrible thing, or it's inconsistent with the brand of that employer that has caused for discharge. There's only been one real case on the subject in Ontario. It involved a Kelly, Philip Kelly, who sued Linamar because he was charged by the police, not convicted, just charged for downloading children porn in the privacy of his own home. So this has nothing to do with Linamar. It's nothing to do with my work. I was doing it at my house, wasn't doing it at work, wasn't touching work computers. The company said, we don't care. We support children's mm -hmm. charities. If this ever got in the newspaper that an employee of Linamar was was charged by the police for downloading children porn, that would damage Linamar. They fired him, he sued, and the company won the case. Didn't pay him a penny, and the court sustained that. Uh, and is it any defense to say, well, this person said it, that person of authority said it, They does that, does that hold any water in any of this? No, it's a good point, and it does. If other employees are allowed to do it, the company can't single some out and others. What, what they could do is they could say, this person's a manager, this person's a marketing head, this person represents the company. We don't really care what somebody in the mailroom says that nobody relates to our company. So that distinction could not be used as an offense. But if two marketing managers do the same thing and the company fires one, then the employee would have a good case saying the company didn't take this seriously. They weren't consistent in their actions, like any employment law dispute. You've got a 
essentially do to everybody or nobody. How do you gauge whether it's damaging to the employer? Well, that's ultimately up to the evidence. Like every case, Scott, it's like up to the evidence you call a trial. You call executives of the company to testify. You, you show evidence of what the company's brand is. You show mission statements, you show code of conduct, and you perhaps there's some feedback from the community that you can see, look what happened. Look at the nasty tweets we got about this. Look at the nasty letters we received. Look at this call to boycott that came up. I had a case recently in Manitoba. I can't discuss it beyond that. But the company in question had a lot of very angry letters and a call to boycott that company. It was pretty easy there to show there was mm. brand damage. So they fired them. Mm. Is this pretty cut and, draw, uh, cut and dry for the employer or is there a lot of uh, proof to be made here? Is this, is this pretty black and white? I think if you're talking about a manager or someone in a client-facing or public-facing position, we're talking about open support for beheading children and the various calamities that just occurred in the Gaza, it's pretty open and shut. Howard Levitt with us, senior partner, uh, senior partner, Levitt Cheek, employment and labor lawyers, offices in Toronto and Hamilton, talking about workplace laws, which you can and cannot say. Howard, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. My pleasure. You too, anytime. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. Well, Scott, to talk about how those Blue Jays are doing, mm, I guess the same as always. Okay, but also terrible at the same time. Blue Jays really are a paradox. Nine one one. Nine one one. Nine one one. What's your emergency? Ah, I'm on a cruise ship. Ah, there was an explosion. Oh my God! The ship is sinking. I can't get out. There's water everywhere. We're going down. I've got a lock on your location. Stay with me. Hello? Are you there? Help is on the way. Angela Bassett and Peter Krause return in an all-new season of 911 on a new night. Thursday, March 14th on Global. Stream on Stack TV.